Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. Women of color are too often forgotten in most media coverage. From Wonder Media Network, the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics is the one-stop shop for women of color who want to hear and talk about the world of politics. Host Ashanti Golar speaks with influential activists, politicians, journalists, and more who are playing a transformative role in the 2020 elections. This Monday, she released a new season and the first episode is all about Brianna's Law and the future of criminal justice reform. No matter the outcome on November 3rd, women of color will play a key role in what happens leading up to and after Election Day. We need to be listening to women of color leading the way. So listen and subscribe to The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those of us who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Now, last week, we had on Mike Murphy, the Republican co-host of the Hacks on Tap podcast. And this week, we are thrilled to have his Democratic co-host, David Axelrod. Ax is a 35-year veteran of American politics and journalism. He twice elected our favorite president, advised that president in the White House, was Ravi's boss in the 2008 campaign, has been a mentor to me, is the best commentator on CNN, runs the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and has a fantastic podcast of his own called The Axe Files. Ax, thanks for being here, man. Great to be here. I, uh, I I hate to say fake news, but it's actually now 45 years that I've been at this. So, so you have not updated your bio in 10 years. <laughs> Painful, but yes. So you're why? I mean, you're just 10 years wiser. Yes, and I'm glad that you didn't put me on there with this uh, on here with that jerk Murphy. You know, I hate hanging out with him. So. <laughs> That's why it's a biweekly podcast. Hacks on tap. You need two weeks yeah, to get over I, it. I, I love that guy. So, and he's very very smart. Good to be with you guys. Thanks. Thanks for being here. Uh, we usually start with the news of the week. Ravi, take it away. Well, we have a lot of news, but I want to start with just a, a state of the race. You know, right now we're about two weeks out from Election Day, uh, but folks are already voting. Uh, as of now, we have over 30 million Americans have voted, which is uh, significantly more than at this point in 2016. Over 80 million people have requested ballots already. And the race seems pretty stable. We're still uh, at an average in 538 of over 10 points in Biden's favor. And, and in the line by line of most battleground states, he has healthy leads in, in a lot of states uh, and consistent leads in others. Um, and Axe, I wanted to ask you about just what you think could upend this race. And in particular, I want to ask about this Time Siena poll that came out a couple of days ago, which showed Biden with leads uh, on every issue uh, that you can imagine, plus 12 on leadership on the virus, plus six on the Supreme Court, plus six on law and order, and even even on the economy. And I know as, as an avid Hacks listener, one thing that you've always been concerned about was Trump's standing on the economy. And, and you've always felt like that was 
the best ground for him in this election, but it seems like he might even be losing ground there. Yeah, best of a bad lot, I would say. Look, I spend a lot of my time these days doing therapy with neurotic uh, Democrats who have uh, Pohl's traumatic stress syndrome from the last election. And, you know, uh, George Mitchell, the old majority leader uh, in the Senate, used to say the only people who believe Republican talking points are Democratic senators. And it's a little like that now, you know, the people who there are two groups of people who believe that Trump can pull this off. One are his supporters who are absolutely certain he's going to win a landslide. And the other are are nervous Democrats who worry about a repeat of 2016. This isn't 2016. This is a very stable race. The president is an incumbent, not a plucky challenger here. Joe Biden isn't Hillary Clinton. He's uh, at least 10 points more popular than she is. And he has a reach into these non-college white voters that uh, that Trump doesn't have. He's doing significantly better among suburban voters. And remember, a majority, uh, a plurality of Americans who vote live in suburbs, uh, you know, and Biden has a double digit lead in an area that Trump uh, won. Senior citizens, Trump won by eight points last time. Biden has a, a significant lead in some polls there, lead in all polls. Uh, they vary. But the point is, he's doing much better with seniors. I think it was plus 10 in that uh, in that New York Times poll you mentioned, you know, and women, uh, the gender gap is lame. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons to believe that Biden's going to win win this race. And uh, and I do. And, you know, last point on this, perhaps the most uh, reliable predictor of a president's performance in a reelection is his job approval rating. Trump's has been mired in the low to mid 30s, uh, 40s, I should say, throughout uh, and that presidents really get a, a lot more than their approval rating. And I think that's where this race is going to sort of end up nationally. I think he could get up to the 45, 46, you know, if he has a good day. But that would portend a national margin that speaks more to the possibility of Biden having a very wide electoral college lead than that Trump gets to 270. So does that mean Really, maybe our biggest concern in terms of the race changing in any way is complacency at this point on our part. Well, there's one big event left, the debate tomorrow night. And uh, I will say this, the vast majority of Americans report that they've made their decision. And the ones who are left are low information voters who are very unlikely to be watching the debate tomorrow night. But if something really astonishing happens in the debate, you know, maybe it changes up the storyline. I really, really doubt it. I think complacency is a problem. And that's why people don't like me talking like this. Uh, it's like, don't put it, don't, don't, don't jinx anything. Don't discourage people. And you saw Jen O'Malley Dillon, I think quite properly warned people, Biden's manager to be, um, you know, to be vigilant and not to assume anything and that this is still a tough race. And look, there are things we don't know. Um, you know, this large number of people who are voting by mail creates an issue about how and when these ballots are going to be counted, how many are going to be excluded because, you know, you're going to have a lot of people who haven't voted by mail before. And there are certain things that you have to do to um, to to qualify your ballot. So there are those those issues. But just just looking at the numbers, I, I think that people have rendered a judgment about Donald Trump. I think the virus has exacerbated it. And Biden has the right set of qualities 
in contrast to Trump in the midst of a crisis, empathy, decency, character, uh, those things are coming up big in people's concerns. You bring up a good point, which is that, you know, General Mally Dillon and the Biden campaign have been really on message about the idea that it doesn't matter what any of the numbers say, this is a race. And that is a stark difference from last time when it almost felt as if the the Clinton campaign and their senior leadership almost it felt undignified to be in a close race with Donald Trump. And so therefore, they didn't want to represent it that way. And looking back, not as undignified as losing to Donald Trump. Well, it turns out. <laughs> um, and I think that's hopefully the lesson we've learned. Yeah, no, I know. Look, I look, I think this is a wholly different situation. You know, I was out on the streets the day after the inauguration last year in, in Washington. I was there for CNN. And so I was there for the Women's March. And the thing that struck me that day was not so much the anger of people. It wasn't anger. It was determination. And I have sensed that every day since. And we saw it in the midterm elections. I just think there is an enormous amount of energy uh, among uh, people who want to uh, turn the page on Donald Trump. And you can see it in the early voting and the, the these astonishing numbers that we're uh, seeing, you know, Harris County in uh, in Texas around Houston, like, you know, they've booked half the number of voters who voted in 2016 already. If I were running the Biden campaign, I'd do exactly what Jen is doing. And I would because the yes, complacency is an enemy here. If, uh, but I don't think people, I think people are so moved by the stakes here that I think they're going to come and vote as they've begun voting already. So both in the debate and just in the closing days of this campaign, you know, as a, as a messaging genius, what would you have uh, Biden talking about? Like, what are the few sentences you'd want to leave with the American voters in these last few days? I think the sentences he's speaking are the right sentences. We can turn the page on this on this Donald Trump era, we can come together as a country, confront this virus, uh, build an economy that works better for for uh, for everyday Americans, and uh, offers greater opportunity for the broadest number of people. And you know, I'd just be hammering those themes. Uh, they they had a great ad on the World Series last night that was narrated by Sam Elliott. There is only one America. No democratic rivers. No Republican mountains, just this great land and all that's possible on it with a fresh start. By the way, anything you do that is narrated by Sam <laughs> Elliott, uh, you know, gets people's attention because he's got such a wonderful voice. But it was really about uh, coming together as Americans, what we share as Americans. And I felt really strongly, and obviously this podcast is in some ways dedicated to that this idea. If you want people to come across and join you, you have to invite them across the bridge. You can't blow the bridge up while they're trying to cross it and in some way disqualify them because they in the past have supported Donald Trump or they're thinking about supporting Donald Trump. Instead, you need to emphasize uh, what we share, why we, sh we, can, we can walk forward together uh, I think Biden's done a very good job of this. You know, it, it is a very coherent closing argument. You know, when you think about the first ad he ran, which was really centered around Charlottesville and the the need to uh, come together and fight this incessant divisiveness. The core values of this nation 
our standing in the world, our very democracy, everything that has made America, America is at stake. That's why today I'm announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. You know, he is ending where he he uh, began. And um, and I think the country is, you know, I think a majority of Americans are hungry for that. I remember maybe three years ago, I guess it was, sitting with you in your office and talking about the people you knew at the place you have up in Michigan. And I, and I remember one of the things you said that has stuck with me the whole time that I think what you're saying now really speaks to us learning from this was you said, you know, if you tell a group of voters over and over again that they're not your voters, they will eventually believe you. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think that was a mistake that the Clinton campaign made in 2016. And, you know, it, when you have na- the thing that I've always learned, you guys, and it, it's animated so much of what I do, including my own podcast, uh, The Axe Files, is everybody has a story. There is humanity to everyone. And we have to find our common humanity and speak to our common humanity. My neighbors up in Michigan are good people. They're hardworking people. And they didn't feel as if they were being spoken to. And I think Biden has spoken to them. Uh, He speaks to them by dint of who he is. And he speaks to them by dint of the words he's choosing. You know, I don't know how many of them uh, will flip back. I think some will. But it is a it is a much different picture. And I think that's why he is one of the reasons why he's doing a relatively better in the industrial belt and in the in the upper Midwest, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. And and, you know, interesting to watch these polls from states like Ohio and Iowa, both of which are toss up states right now. And I think a lot of it has to do with who Biden is and how he has approached this race. Obviously, some of it has to do with disaffection with Donald Trump, and he reinforces the reasons people are disaffected every day. But I think Biden, Biden is a good messenger for this message, and, it, and I think it is making a difference. And so uh, one thing that we can expect uh, tonight, you know, given that this is Aaron Thursday, is Biden's going to be pressed on this question of the Supreme Court uh, and court packing. And your buddy, uh, Mike Murphy, came on our podcast last week, and he had a pretty strong words uh, for Biden uh, on two points. One that I, I 100% agree with, which is he said Biden should be clear about what he's going to do, uh, which I agree with. The second was that he thinks Biden should just state outright that he's not going to pack the court. And um, we didn't have time to really press him on this, but he said that this was you know, Banana Republic stuff, I think was his quote. And I've been thinking about that ever since, Axe, because is it really Banana Republic stuff to expand the court when it's not illegal? Um, it's certainly something that's happened in our history. And we're dealing with a highly politicized court that could be blocking any progress that the Biden administration tries to make on both fundamental issues of democracy, like voting rights, uh, which we saw in this 4-4 decision that should scare us all from Pennsylvania this week you know, on a host of other pieces of legislation like the ACA, if we start seeing a court striking down uh, one piece of legislation after another or one attempt to guard our democracy after another, shouldn't we leave open the possibility that we would try to rectify this? Well, leaving open the possibility is different than saying that that's what you want to do. And, you know, I, look, I don't think he's handled it particularly well, at, particularly at the beginning because he made a very tactical answer, which is, I don't want to answer because I don't want to create an issue. You know, I don't think that's a very satisfactory answer. And, you know, there was a very respectable way 
to navigate this, which is to say, you know, we're in the middle of a, a hundred year pandemic. We uh, have an economic crisis in this country and 11 million people can't pay their bills as we speak because they've lost their jobs or businesses. And that's where I'm focused right now. And that's where I think people want their president to be focused. And there'll be time and there'll be a time and place for this debate. That would have been a good answer at the beginning. Um, but, you know, let's just assert or let's just stipulate that maybe he just really doesn't know. Maybe yeah. I know that his inclination is not to be for this. He said that uh, and he said, I want to see what happens. And that, it seems to me, is a pretty responsible decision uh, or a pretty responsible position which is to say my inclination is not to be for this, but I want to see what happens. And if this court becomes sort of an ideological uh, roadblock to common sense things that the vast majority of Americans support, if they do what they Republicans have often said they oppose, which is legislate from the bench, then, you know, you, you can approach it. I, I, he said he's going to have an answer before the uh, election, I, you know, but it doesn't necessarily have to be yes or no. It could be how I'm going to approach this. And right. I think that's what you can expect. But, you know, you, Ravi, you're, you're, the, the point you're making is there's a lot of sentiment among uh, progressives and Democrats about this. Nationally, it's a pretty unpopular move. So from the political standpoint, I understand why he doesn't want to answer because he's between a rock and a hard place. From a policy st uh, uh, perspective, I think he's also right not to lay down a solid yes or no on this question right now. It's interesting because I think you may have softened my position on it, X, because I, because I, I hadn't really thought about the idea of giving the court an opportunity to not be the partisan group that the Republican Senate clearly intends for them to be, right? I hadn't considered that possibility because to me, I've just thought of this as this decision really isn't so much in potential President Joe Biden's hands as right now it's in Mitch McConnell's hands, like in terms of he gets he's deciding right now what what scenario to create and and he can choose not to put us up against that cliff uh but you make a good point that the other way to go is to do two things one see if for some reason this court decides that it's not gonna act in a way that that is completely outside the bounds and second see if that creates the political position in order to do it. If there's, if it, if it looks like okay, this court is out of hand, you have an easier political argument to make in favor of expanding it. And let me just say this: the the country, we are in a state of crisis. Joe Biden is going to enter office with. I used to say Barack Obama had the worst hand of any president since Franklin Roosevelt, and now it's like those uh, those home run records in the uh, in the steroid <laughs> age. They just get broken, you know, every year. Yeah. But uh, but but there's no doubt in my mind that Biden's going to have the toughest hand any president has had since Roosevelt. And, you know, the idea of adding this fight to the to the list right at the outset, to me, doesn't seem wise. Uh, and uh, I'm as outraged as anyone. I, I don't agree. I think Democrats are being disingenuous when they say if they had the opportunity to fill this seat, they wouldn't do it. Yeah, I, agree. Uh, I think given the stakes, they would do it. What makes the thing outrageous is not what they're doing now. It's what they did four years ago. Right. right. And right, depriving right. Merrick Garland, probably the most meritorious appointee and the most broadly supported on genuine grounds uh, uh, that we've seen in a very long time. And just to deprive him of a vote, uh, to, to uh, deprive him of a hearing, 
uh, and now to moralize about the need to fill this seat. You know, they have their own uh, Operation Warp Speed going on in the Senate, and it's to confirm a Supreme Court justice in record time after 400-day roadblock last time. It, it's, it's, it's outrageous. It's cynical. It's corrosive. I, I feel that strongly. That doesn't mean that the reaction should be that Biden should reflexively say, yeah, we're going to add justices to the Supreme Court. I think he should be thoughtful about it. And I applaud him for being thoughtful about it. You know, one thing I agree with is he should preserve his leverage. You know, I think that's one thing to learn from Roosevelt is that even though he didn't wind up going through with it, uh, the leverage mattered. Uh, And Dave Posen over at Columbia Law School has a good article about this where he argues that you might not want to pack the court, but actually leaving open the threat gives us some opportunity yeah, well, you know what happened? I mean, Roosevelt threatened to do it. It wasn't popular. Probably cost him in the midterms in 1938, where he lost 73 seats. The fact that you know that is ridiculous. Well, I only know it because we did so poorly in 2010 that I needed to be able to say, hey, we did better than Roosevelt. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but, 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 you know, ultimately the court did soften its position. And, you know, the old expression, a a switch in time saved nine was what they said back then. So, yeah, I think preserving his leverage is the right thing to do. Yeah. And one final point on this is I think what a lot of people are worried about, and even like not super left people, is the Biden administration is not going to take seriously the fundamental democracy reforms that we need. Like, I think Pfeiffer is really good on this stuff where he's basically like, we need to think more about power uh, and whether it's the courts or D.C. statehood or just HB1, there's a little bit of anxiety that this isn't going to be a priority and that we wind up making short-term gains that are going to be rolled back over time. And I, and I don't know what quite the answer is, but I think that's part of what's wrapped up in this debate about the court. Yeah, well, I think that that argument goes both ways. And look, I, I'm, a, I'm, you know, I'm an old um, institutionalist in many ways, so uh, I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily... You know, I'm not very satisfying to folks in your generation on this, but I do worry about buffeting our institutions and that whoever grabs power, you know, warps them to their, you know, and and there's no doubt there's been some warping done because the Republicans are in a position where they don't, you know, we have a Senate that doesn't represent the uh, majority of Americans. We, I mean, literally doesn't represent them population wise. We have a president who was elected with 3 million votes fewer than his opponent. You know, when the House majority was Republican, they didn't represent a, a majority. You know, the Supreme Court, we have four justices who were appointed by presidents who were originally elected by fewer voters than their opponent. And all of that is to me corrosive to our democracy, and you have McConnell who is is brazen about using every tactic available to try and enforce the will, his will, and the will of his caucus, and it is a tyranny of the minority. So I understand all of these feelings. I just all I would caution is, and I understand the you know we're playing uh, touch while they're playing tackle. I get all of that, uh, but you, when you shred norms, it's very hard to reassemble them. And just be sure of what you're doing, uh, because uh, you could create a situation down the line that is worse uh, for our democracy and worse for shared our shared objectives than you realize in the moment, in the heat of the moment. That, that's my only point. 
Bluebird Botanicals is a B Corp certified CBD company and was one of the first CBD companies in the U.S. They've been formulating and blending the highest quality CBD products since before CBD was cool. When it comes to CBD, quality and transparency is key. The hemp plant is a bioaccumulator, meaning that it'll absorb into the plant anything that's in the soil. Bluebird was the first CBD company to extensively test their products with a third party and post those results on their site, 100% accessible to every customer. It'll tell you everything that's in your bottle of CBD, confirming potency, but also confirming that there aren't any dangerous levels of heavy metals, pesticides, fungicides, or other chemicals resulting in products that work. It's crazy times right now. Lots of unknowns with the pandemic and the upcoming election. Don't put self-care on the back burner. Since the beginning, Bluebird has always cared about their consumers. They recently lowered prices across a majority of their products. And now through the end of October, you can get 50% off all CBD oils and soft gels with the code 50 for you. If you're new to CBD, this is a great opportunity to give it a try, especially with this discount and Bluebird's 30-day guarantee. Visit bluebirdbotanicals.com and use the code 50-4-U at checkout. That's 50-F-O-R-Y-O-U at checkout. So like many of you listeners, you know, I've been taking a lot of Zoom calls from my apartment. And right behind me in the room where I take most of my calls, I have the shelf in my kitchen. And there's just a few bags of athletic greens behind me. And so from time to time, people ask me about it. And somebody asked me the other day, you know, what, what's going on with these athletic greens? What do you what do you use this for? And just on the spot, I started rattling off everything in my life that's better when I take athletic greens, whether it's my sleep, whether it's my exercise, my concentration, my energy levels, just everything seems to get better uh, when you take athletic greens. And that combo has really worked for me. And, and that's part partly because uh, it's comprised of so many minerals. There's 75 minerals, vitamins, and whole foods in there, and it's made without any harmful chemicals or GMOs. And what's awesome is that Athletic Greens is giving our audience a special offer on their top all-in-one formula, which is a free liquid vitamin D supplement with your first purchase for additional immune support. Many of us are deficient in vitamin D, which is usually produced in our bodies from sun exposure, and adding a vitamin D supplement to your daily routine is a great way to support vitamin D production. So if you're looking to upgrade your multivitamin or take one nutritional formula that's going to help you cover your daily nutritional bases, then you want to consider Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens makes getting as much high-quality nutrition as possible incredibly easy without the need to buy multiple products. Make an investment in your health today and try the ultimate all-in-one wellness bundle and support your immunity, gut health, and energy by visiting athleticgreens.com majority. You'll receive up to a year's supply of liquid vitamin D for free with your first purchase. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority. We have this segment we call Quarantine Corner Acts, which is where we just talk about something happened in our week outside of politics, a book we read, a movie we watched, et cetera. Jason, what do you have for us? Uh, so as listeners know, I'm the president of Veterans Community Project, and we're expanding nationwide. And we've already begun construction on a new campus outside Denver. And this week, I got to fly to St. Louis to dedicate land for another. And it was the most people I've been around in several months. And honestly, <laughs> it was kind of wild. And I accidentally shook two hands, which I, I, I haven't shaken a hand in months. But it just, you know, sort of the politician in me was greeting people and I and I shook two hands and then I just you uh, had apologized. sanitizer didn't you I, immediately I was yes. bathed mm -hmm. in it immediately yeah. but I also just apologized profusely yeah. you can't undo the wiring man when you <laughs> you're, right. uh, when you're a politician it's very hard not to shake people's hands so <laughs> it uh, was amazing well ask yeah. anything in your world well I'd say two real quick things I'm in New York 
uh, and I'm living uh, right on the on the sort of Hudson River. And I've been walking up and down uh, every day just to get out uh, the river and just to see uh, people are out with their masks. Everybody's wearing masks, but to see humanity has been really refreshing uh, to me. The other thing is, I watched that uh, the great movie about my my old buddy Pete Souza, the White House photographer, called "The Way I See It," and his perspective as a photojournalist who became a White House photographer, both for Ronald Reagan and for Barack Obama, and it reminded me of the nobility of service. Uh, I walked into that White House every day, and I and I felt chills knowing the history of that building and the responsibility that we had. And I miss that. I miss, you know, and I think Republican and Democrats, Republicans and Democrats would tell you who've served there the same thing. Uh, uh, that has been sullied, defiled over the last four years. And I miss that. Uh, and Pete's photos brought it back in a way that really was moving. Uh, well, welcome to New York, by the way. That's where I am right now, too. Uh, and I agree. New York is the energy here. I may, is... have, pa- I may have passed you because you may have had your mask on. So yeah. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm over on the east side where I think you you come from, right? You come from Stuyvesant. Yes, Town, Stuyvesant right? Town. Yes. Um, yeah, I was I was over there. It's not it was a very austere place that was built for returning war veterans back when I was growing up. Now it's like a pa- it's it's it's, it's a little fancy. It's a little fancy it's like, now. Whoa, yeah. what happened here? That's that's yeah. true of almost everything in New York now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, I agree with you. The the energy here is it, at the moment it it can both be scary and inspiring. It's really hard to describe if you if you don't see it. Uh, and especially Manhattan is quiet compared to what it normally is, and yeah. it's, it's unsettling. But of also Manhattan peaceful. quiet and uh, to what it normally is is still is still Agreed. something to behold. Agreed. Well, uh, my highlight of the week is I reread uh, one of my favorite novels. It's called uh, City of Thieves. It's by David Benioff, by the guy who wrote Game of Thrones, or not the book Game of Thrones, but did the TV show with with Weiss. And uh, it's a short read. It's riveting. It's all about the siege of Leningrad. And I reread it every once in a while because it's this awesome swashbuckling story. It's like a buddy story. And, and I love books like that, like Cavalier and Clay, where it's, you know, buddies kind of making their way in the world. If you, if you ever want to go down a rabbit hole, listeners, you can Google my name and this book. Um, I once got into a fight with a school board back in Nashville when I was running a school there because I assigned this book to seventh graders, not thinking through how mature the content was. And, uh, <laughs> you know, New Yorker meets Southern school board uh, with, you know, about sex, uh, like uh, con- sexual yeah. content in a book. It Just was like uh, inherent the wind. Yeah, it was not a very it wasn't my shining moment. They didn't shut us down over the book, but the kids, enjoyed you know, it. I. I appreciate the the recommendation. I've got a stack of books here that I want to read. And I'm just so absorbed in this election that I just keep picking up my freaking phone and checking, checking, refreshing my real clear politics feed to see what new polls have been added. And then I I'm analyzing the polls, and it's sick, man. I, I can't wait. <laughs> I can't wait. Act somehow, I think you're going to so find. I can read. Act somehow, I think you're going to find a way to to be on Twitter after this election, anyway. Uh. <laughs> I know, but I got to find a way to enforce some absence from my telephone. It is, uh, it's unhealthy. It really is unhealthy. Yeah. And it ruins your attention span, and it's. Um, it's insidious. So that's a after the election project. If my wife is listening, she will applaud uh, vigorously. 
my whole family would is on board with this plan. My seven year old calls me distracted guy. It's real bad. <laughs> that is that's sad. Yes, it is. It's a turn on the stereotype of the parents uh, wagging their finger at kids uh, staring at their phones. Oh. You're you're the one with the problem. Yeah, I, no, I am that guy who's like looking at my phone, being like, "No screens right now." To my son over him grabbing his iPad, and then I feel ridiculous. We we've got maybe maybe we'll create a, a like a self help group on that one. I'm I'm all for it. It just not as a text chain on a phone. We're gonna have <laughs> yeah to do exactly it by, by snail mail. Have, yeah, mail. I'm gonna I'm gonna write notes to you. Well, uh, on to our segment we call This Week in Misinformation, and we want to focus on Trump's fight with Dr. Fauci. To set the scene here, the U.S. is averaging uh, around 55,000 new cases per day. Ten states reported their highest ever single-day increases on Friday. Uh, and on Sunday, President Trump mocked Biden uh, for trusting scientists uh, and then on Monday, on a campaign call, he went after Fauci, calling him a, quote, disaster. People are tired of hearing Fauci and all these idiots, these, these people, these people that have gotten it wrong. Fauci's a nice guy. He's been here for 500 years. Every time he goes on television, there's always a bomb. But there's a bigger bomb if you fire him. But Fauci's a disaster. And uh, this follows a 60 Minutes interview in which Fauci talked about how the White House has been blocking many of his public appearances and talked about that he's had to get security to protect him against credible death threats. You know, first time he's had to get security, by the way, after I think he's worked for five presidents. And this is the first time he's had to have that kind of security, which should make you wonder. But Axe, you're 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 a political pro. How smart is it to be attacking Dr. Fauci in the closing days of this election? It's brilliant. I never, <laughs> I never, I never would have thought of it. You know, yeah. let, just to put this in context, uh, the Times did a poll in uh, September and they asked who you trusted for information about the coronavirus. Scientists were off the charts, I think close to 90 percent. Uh, Fauci was at 67, despite all the denigration of Trump. Trump was at 26 percent. So in politics, we have a rule. If you're the 26 percent guy, don't att uh, don't attack the 67 percent guy on his strength. Uh, and, um, you know, I think it's tragic. Listen, this there are real implications to this. If Donald Trump had listened to the scientists from the beginning, he, first of all, would be in better shape in his reelect right now. Uh, but secondly, we as a country would be in better shape right now. He is the first president who is running a government that is in a crisis, giving direction and guidance to the public, while the president also leads the resistance to his own government's guidance. Well said. And, and it is really, really tragic. And here's what I worry about, you guys. Uh, and I had John Bolton on my uh, podcast uh, about a week or two ago. And Bolton said I, he was less worried about this stuff that people are worried about, about the, the coup, you know, that Trump would try and overturn the election. He said the, the, his concern is what Trump will do between Election Day and Inauguration Day. And he said, I think he's going to just fire the people who he doesn't like or doesn't, you know. He says, I could see him firing Dr. Fauci. Uh, and, you know, we're going to be in the middle of what looks to be, sadly, a resurgence, a, a, a brutal resurgence of this virus at that point. We can't afford him to be purging the scientists because he they 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 were he felt they were unhelpful in his re-election campaign but that could happen 
and that would be, you know, Donald Trump visiting uh, his wrath, not just on Fauci, but the country. Uh, so it is a real concern. As a political strategy, it's insane, as is mocking Governor Whitmer for being the target of a domestic terrorist threat uh, in Michigan, or going to Wisconsin and saying that you uh, uh, that the virus is turn is disappearing and turning the corner at a time when they just had twenty thousand new cases the previous week, or you know walking out on Leslie Stahl in a sixty minutes interview. There's nothing that he's doing right now that makes sense. He seems to be consumed by rage and resentment about what's happening to him rather than concern about what's happening to the American people. And I think he's going to pay a big price for that. Yeah, I think that the 23 versus 67% thing, you're right. You can't explain it politically. You can only explain it through the lens of a guy with deep insecurity who who just lashes out at people who make him feel more insecure, right? And And it's like what I was realizing when I was thinking about this, and this is how much the last few years have warped my sense of what's normal, is I was thinking, wow, usually they would have, from the very beginning, done a really aggressive smear campaign against somebody like Fauci, and they didn't do it. And then I, I was sick because I, with myself, because I thought, boy, that was a rare mistake by them, you know. But when obviously, like, that's a horrible thing, for, and I'm and I'm pleasantly surprised they didn't do it. But I also know that they didn't like fail to do it because they're being decent. They just they just missed one of their usual opportunities to be indecent. I think that um, the thing that happened was that Fauci went on 60 Minutes the night before. Um, he said he was not surprised that the president got coronavirus, and he was alarmed by the way the president, how careless the president had been. And, and he got a lot of attention, and Donald Trump doesn't like that, you know, and, and so he lashed out. I mean, he's like a child in that way. Uh, so maybe it was predictable that he would do what he did on Monday. You know, the, the funny thing is, by walking out on Leslie Stahl and making the scene he did, he probably just added millions to the audience on Sunday night for that 60 minutes. I mean, he, he threatens to release the whole tape beforehand. But I think people are going to watch that show and he will have helped build an audience for her. So if he didn't think it was a good interview, uh, he just uh, ensured that a lot more people are going to watch it. We have a, a segment that actually I think was inspired by you. It, we call it unsolicited campaign advice. And the genesis of this is that- Because uh, I offer so much of it. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> uh, you know, back uh, when I was, I think in my early 20s, I was already on the campaign for a long time, but I, I got an opportunity to serve as one of your assistants. Uh, and we used to sit in this yes. class office, Karen Dunn, uh, one of my favorite yes. humans. the brilliant Karen Dunn. Yeah, yes. we used to sit in there and I remember- you used to say something like you used to just get bombarded by emails by people who weren't on the campaign offering that advice. And I think you turned to us one time and said that you were the generous recipient of so much unsolicited. Yeah, yeah. Advice. Everybody, everybody was generous with their advice. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we're on the other side and we're not in that glass box anymore, uh, why don't we offer some of that advice uh, to campaigns out there? And it doesn't have to just be the Biden campaign, but as somebody who thinks a lot about messaging with one final chance to talk to people who are out there either helping campaigns or a lot of candidates who listen to this. What's your final piece of advice uh, on the messaging front? You know, if campaigns are done properly, if, if you've run a good campaign, then you have an argument that has coursed through it. You've, you've laid the, 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 the groundwork for a closing argument about what the campaign is about, because ultimately the messages you deliver in the end of a campaign 
uh, go to the, the, the things you want people to be thinking about when they're voting. Uh, you know, Biden began his closing argument early, as he should because of all this early voting that's going on. And other candidates probably should do that, too. But what is the contrast you're trying to strike? What are the what 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 is this election about uh, is what I think you always want to leave with your voters going into Election Day. So think about go big and think about the stakes and the contrast. And what is this election about? What should what do you want them to be thinking when they step into that voting booth or sit in front of that ballot? That, that would be my best advice. It's time for closing arguments. And if you've run a strong campaign, that argument should prevail. Time for what we call grab an oar. Courtesy always goes to the guest co-host. So, Axe, is there any organization or cause that you want to point our audience to uh, as we close this out? I would refer people to organizations that Jason has championed. Uh, I'm the son of a, 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 a wonderful, sp- splendid human being who committed suicide, my dad. Uh, this is a very hard time for a lot of people. So, um, you know, there are uh, myriad organizations that are trying to help. Jason's involved with some of them, particularly related to veterans. But mental illness is like any other illness in that They're common to us, and we need to get help. They're not a reflection of character. They're not a reflection of any sort of deficiency. So don't hesitate to get help. Don't get caught in that long, dark tunnel where you can't, you don't believe that you can find it. But my other, Jason's doing yeoman work on that, uh, in that area. Um, I have a daughter with epilepsy, Lauren, uh, who's 38 now, went through hell as she was growing up, lost most of her childhood to epilepsy, almost lost her life, has deficits now uh, as a result of it that are pretty significant. My wife started an organization 21 years ago called Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy to find the root causes of epilepsy and try and prevent it rather than just deal with the symptoms of it. It's now the, the largest single funder of epilepsy research in the world. But it just started with a bunch of grieving moms at a kitchen table, angry about the fact that there weren't any answers. And everybody's focused on COVID as they should be. It's a hard time for people to think about other challenges. But to the extent you can, check into Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy. They do splendid work. What's their website? It is cureepilepsy.org. Awesome. Hey, X. Thank you for being here. This was uh, really great, and you changed my mind on some stuff, and uh, I think we both learned some stuff, right, Ravi? It's good to see you again, boss. Well, well you guys are, yeah, great to see you. You're both among my favorites, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate your podcast, and I appreciate your sensibilities and your sensitivity. Uh, just keep up the good work. Will do. Come back anytime. I uh, will. I, I will just ask. Okay, well, I'll text you after this. (laughs) You can hear more from Axe on his podcast, The Axe Files, and on Hacks on Tap. Axe is at David Axelrod on Twitter and at The David Axelrod on Instagram. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. In the next two weeks, we want to make sure that we're as helpful to you as possible. So leave us a voicemail letting us know what you want help talking about. 
and we may even play it on the air and respond. The number is 508-687-2589. 508-687-2589. All right, remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Allard. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.